and welcome Amanda. Good morning, I'm Amanda, and as of March, I will have been a member of H2O for 15 years. <laughs> so I'm here, usually you see me up here talking about Kenya, and today is a little bit different. I am talking about Kenya, but in a different way than usual. Um, if you are interested in any of our international ministry, you can write Kenya on your welcome card. And we also have some children available for sponsorship in the back if you're interested. You can take a look at that after the service. But my reason for being here today is to tell you a story. So in 2007, we started a partnership with Food for the Hungry. And Food for the Hungry is a very unique organization in that there's child sponsorship and their international development work is not the same as everything else because they actually empower leaders within the community to make their own changes. They don't come in with a plan. They don't come in saying, we're gonna teach you this specific lesson about the gospel. We're not going, they don't come in saying, this is the project you need to do. They're there to support the community. And so that's part of the reason why we partner with them. So back, about eight years ago, I started sponsoring a little girl, that's Cecilia. And so it started off, she was really young, she didn't know English very well, so it was mostly just drawing pictures and, oh, what's your favorite subject, and that kind of thing. But as the years progressed and she got older, we were able to talk about things like politics, religion, um, culture, and a lot of other really interesting things. And I got a lot of different perspectives on what it was like over there that was a little bit different than what most people find. So fast forward to last December. Last December, I got a letter from Food for the Hungry saying that Cecilia had graduated and that she was not able to be sponsored anymore. We both knew it was coming, so we said our goodbyes and that was it. Fast forward again to this past July. My husband and I went to Kenya to visit friends and family and we road tripped up to Parkashan with some friends of ours. <laughs> so, um, at that point, we were just visiting some FH staff. We were visiting the pastor and his family who put us up while we're there. And I just happened to mention Cecilia's name. And David, who works in Parkashan, said that she was in college in Meru. And even for sponsor kids, that's really a big deal because money is very tight and you have to pay a lot of money to go to college there. So the fact that she was even there at all was a miracle. So, Emeru is about five hours away from Parkashan. So, I was like, okay, I'll just leave a gift with her mom. And this was about four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Saturday morning, 9 a.m., we're getting ready to go. She took a matatu overnight to make sure that she was there to see us. And that's very sweet and very touching, and I could cry about it. However, that's still not the point of my story. She actually wanted to go into medicine. I've known that for a very long time, so I was talking to her about school. And she said that's still her plan eventually, but she decided to go into community development first. So her three-pronged goal for Parkashan is to end FGM, even though it is illegal in Kenya, it's still practiced very widely in rural areas. She also wants to end child marriage, and she wants to get more kids into school. And so, she is the living embodiment of what Food for the Hungry is doing in that community. She is going back and taking what she has learned to improve the lives of the people she loves. And she is one of the best people to do that. Because not only does she understand the culture, 
She's a part of that culture. She and the other leaders in that community can decide what parts of their culture need to be preserved, what parts are good, what parts need to be honored and respected, and what parts need to be changed for the better. And so I just wanted to share that story with you because it was something that was really special to me, but it's also a great example of what Food for the Hungry is doing in Kenya. And in a day like today when there's so much drama going on and so much negativity in the world, I feel like we could use a few more Cecilias out there. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised to Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation-laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. 
And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorce their wives, the story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. And we're thinking, thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. 
Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. All right. <clears throat> Lots of stuff. Tons. Who feels like they learned something right there? Yeah. Really helpful. Really helpful. That's one of the reasons that um, we've been showing these videos is because they're well, so well done. Um, and our goal, like I said earlier, is that we want to be able to understand Scripture and to be able to read it properly. And as we know, like over the centuries, there's been a lot of Christians that have simply misread Scripture. They've either read into the text um, certain meanings that are not there, or they've taken things out of context, and it's caused them uh, a lot of problems. Even entire movements within Christianity at times have been built on some misinterpretation. And so part of the reason we've really enjoyed the way these videos are set up is they help us to think deeply about the overarching themes and what God is really trying to teach us. Like, what are the lessons from this story and these wisdom books? And so, um, I love the explanation of the book that we're going to discuss today. Um, part of the reason I like the way these videos are set up is that it helps us to get out of our Western thinking. And by that, um, we come about this naturally. We live in a Western culture, and we often approach the Bible in a Western way, like through Western eyes, and we come about that honestly. That's just naturally where we live and how we view things. But that tends to be more of a legal mind. 
In other words, we look at each word and dissect that, and what does that mean, and what does this mean, and how do those things work together? And there are a number of um, you know, theologians and others that would say, this is ancient Near Eastern writing. It wasn't meant to be read and interpreted that way, the way that we read things. So oftentimes, we are looking more for loopholes or what is exactly is meant by that. We see that even the religious teachers at times, they started to move that way with Jesus when he'd make a point, and they'd say, well, what do you really mean by this? And what do you mean by this? They started to kind of pick those things apart, and that oftentimes is the way we approach Scripture. And so, um, Ravi Zacharias, who's uh, a really good you know, a philosopher, someone who speaks across, across the country and in all areas of the world has mentioned this, that he notices that those in the East do not get caught up in details, but they're asking, what is the moral of the story? And I think that's really helpful when it comes to looking at these books. So we have talked about um, and we have talked through like Job and Ecclesiastes and now heading into this book in Nehemiah. And it's important that we get the bigger point and that through that, I really feel that we're going to grow in wisdom, which is really important. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to share a little bit of my personal story and kind of my interaction with these books, like with Job and Ecclesiastes and with Nehemiah. Um, and hopefully this is helpful to some. About 10 years after I had become a Christian, um, I had a three-year-long period of doubt and deliberation over whether this book was really true. And I was considering whether it was just a human book, just human authors that had some decent thoughts, some, um, some nice ideas, but it certainly was not the story of God. And so I spent a ton of time reading atheistic literature, naturalistic thinking. Um, I spent time delving into all kinds of disciplines, so biology, human evolution, philosophy, world religions, humanism, social issues, um, sexual norms, law, you name it, I studied it. And it lasted for about three years or so, and during the time, I've got to admit, it was really dark for me emotionally in a lot of ways, and it ate me up. And so I was really distant I was married at the time. We had our oldest, um, so we had one child. We've got five now. Um, but, man, there were times I'd be out with my friends, and they'd be enjoying themselves, and I would just be thinking deeply, looking out the window, thinking, okay, so we have a DNA code, and we also have a system that decodes that code. Where did that come from? I mean, these were the types of thoughts and it was starting to lead me into despair in a lot of ways as I got maybe towards the end of that thinking, if 
That side of things is true. If we really are the result of blind, random chance, then hope and love and relationships and all this is really pretty meaningless. Aside from what maybe we decide we want it to be. And so these books had a profound effect on my faith. And so I would say that during that time, I was also, I would say, probably in a state of clinical depression also, as I was thinking about my world unraveling and my purpose in life being challenged and what that meant for me. And so I really kind of held God off at a distance. At that point, it was like, God, you can sit over there and wait and I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to determine whether you're real or not. And so that was tough. It was really tough. It was tough emotionally. Um, it was, I think, a time where I was really alone in that but in the midst of that, God spoke to me profoundly with these books. These stories and the overarching story matched my reality. So, during that time, if this book had read like a fairy tale. If it had said, if you just follow Jesus, everything will be great. Your relationships will be wonderful. Your church will grow. You'll be a great leader. You'll be healthy and wealthy. Um, I probably would have dropped the faith completely at that point because it didn't match my reality. And if this book doesn't match our reality, then it's not true. And that's one of the tests for its veracity. Does it match what we really see in real life? And as I started reading this, and this was all throughout Scripture, it corresponded to reality, and it passed the test. And so... Here in Nehemiah, we have these three separate leaders who were led by, there was some hope, and things just didn't turn out real well. Like I said in the video, it was, there was disappointment afterwards. And they tried, they wanted, um, they wanted the best for God's people. Um, in a lot of cases, in, in those three leaders, they kind of did their own thing. They went after their own vision, and there was conflict, and it was difficult. But one of the things that drew me to this was that this is real life, and it's not nursery rhyme fairy tale, you will live happily ever after. And the reality that I saw on our planet matched what Scripture was saying. Now, when it comes to my own Christian life, I could say that um, <clears throat> I've had a few wins, for sure. 
Um, but I have had a lot of losses. And I can tell you times, you know, I remember um, it was a Thursday night. You guys remember when we were doing those Thursday night services? So you weren't there yet. That's right. And, um, and I had spent just an entire week, like, just investing so much time in the teaching and the music and our band. There was so much that went into this and just in hopes that God would bring people and we could reach people with the gospel. And just prior to that, just before the service, I remember looking out and there was nobody there. Maybe like two people. And that was it. And I remember just thinking, God, like, am I in the wrong, you know, should I be doing this? <laughs> or, wow, um, this is really tough. And yet, there was, a, there was this disappointment, but also knowing that, God, you didn't call me to be successful. You called us to be faithful, to do the right thing regardless. And so, um, it was difficult. Some great wins, though. Um, I remember when we first moved here to Orlando, we did some really edgy, creative stuff. Um, and somehow, it just got out there. We were meeting in a different location, and so these Thursday nights, at, at one point, there were busloads of people that would come in, and it was insane, and we had to keep the doors closed for a certain time, and once we'd open up, people would run in, and I literally would have to, like, step over people to get to the stage, and it was packed, and more and more people were finding out about it, and it just traveled like crazy. And God used that to reach hundreds of people. It was really cool to see that happen. But when I look at stories like this and we see hope and we see disappointment, it also reminds me of this has kind of been my life. Two steps forward, one step back, being frustrated, um, feeling under-resourced, Bottom line was struggle. It was just struggle that was involved. And then the more time I spent in God's Word, it's like, wait a minute. This is what Scripture shows us. Struggle. Men and women who are in the midst of struggle. Whether it's Nehemiah or Solomon or Peter or the Apostle Paul or Jesus, there is struggle. And only Jesus at the end is able to say, it is finished, I accomplished it. So that really started to change me where I saw, this is not a fairy tale. This is reality. We have frail, inadequate humans, and yet filled with the Spirit God uses us in our frailty and our imperfections. And that's the story here. Some of you probably heard the, the phrase, 
into every life, some rain will fall. Sooner or later, we are going to ask the difficult questions and the issues that are raised in these books. So it's really important that we learn from God in those. Um, so last week, Ecclesiastes, I love that book because it paints reality as it is and still through it, how does God want us to live and operate and trust Him when things don't work out the way we want them to? So this morning, we're going to look a little more at Nehemiah and what he brought to the table and how it came to be. And first, a little backstory on him. Um, he was not a priest or um, anyone who was in full-time ministry. Uh, he's got a good job. He was an employee for the king. He has responsibilities. The king trusts him. He's a good man. He also cares about the people of God. And when he hears that things aren't going well in Jerusalem, the report is things are not good, he wants to do something. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that he says, okay, I'm willing to leave what's comfortable here, a good job, and I'm willing to head back there and lead this and do something. And so, you know, like the video said at the end, <laughs> he tried. But man, I think God honors that when we try. There's a lot of us here in the room that have tried and really wanted and desired for God to use us. And I really feel like that is honoring to God when we do that. So we had this hope that it talks about in Ezra Nehemiah. And Zerubbabel leads this wave returning to rebuild the temple, and that doesn't work out too well. Ezra, the scholar-theologian, um, he runs into issues also, and that's kind of a mess. And then we're moving on, and I'm going to focus here more on, on Nehemiah. So we're going to read this together in chapter 13 in just a little bit. But he takes this offer from the king to head back. He prays about it first. And he's willing to go. And he leaves his place of comfort to go and make a difference. And the thing that I really love about him, what leads him is just that he has a shepherd's heart. He has a heart for the people of God. And that is really what motivates him to head back and rebuild those walls and do what he did. So Nehemiah 13, 15 through 22 and you're going to see a guy here who is, I think, kind of desperate and in some ways maybe doesn't handle things super well. In those days, I saw people, so chapter 13, verses 15 through 22 is what we're looking at. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day 
People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When even, evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. So certainly, there's some desperation there. He's concerned. Maybe, like they said in the video, did, could this have been handled differently? I think so. But ultimately, the bigger story was that there was disappointment at the end, that what they were really hoping for didn't happen. And I just feel like, personally, that has happened in my life. What I've hoped for in a lot of areas hasn't happened. And I realize that I am not right in my story. God is. And that's made all the difference. For those of you that in this room where you have a shepherd's heart, there are some of you that that's the way you think. That you think about this community, you think about others and your friends, kind of your group of friends and your circle, and you want the best for them. And I just want to encourage you to think about that deeply, pray about what God wants from you in that and how you can contribute to that community in whatever way that looks like. Like I was just thinking about this morning how I'm thankful for our worship team that they use their skills, they use their gifts. It takes a lot of time. They practice so that we can connect with God. And just how a community, when we bring those gifts together, God uses that. And so I know that there are things going on in our hearts where we are kind of stirred up. And we care about the people of God. And you have ideas, and God can use you, and I want to encourage you to go for it. To step forward and say, I'm going to leave my place of being comfortable and I'm going to take a chance, and God will use you. Like I said, there's been some disappointment in my life, but at the same time, I have some really close friends that would die for me, that would do anything for me. And that is really important. I think of some of the people that I've led to Christ over the years that addiction and divorce 
and all kinds of pain that was part of their past, that their family trees are going to look different as a result of them now knowing Jesus. I led a church in, in Bowling Green, Ohio, and I constantly prayed that the men that I was building into would pass me up, and it happened. Like they passed me up. God is using them incredibly in other people's lives. Hundreds of lives have been changed as a result of that. And that's just proof that imperfection, inadequate people that don't know what they're doing, God can use. Because that's who he gets us. That was his vehicle for reaching the world. So you guys in the band, you guys can come up. Um, when we read Job, Ecclesiastes, Nehemiah, here's some of those big things that we can learn. Bad things can happen to good people. We can choose to enjoy life in the midst of the struggle because there will be struggle. Three, there aren't guarantees. There just aren't. It's not the book of fairy tales where it's happily ever after. The happily ever after is knowing you're forgiven and you have a relationship with God to walk through the struggle. That's what he says, I will be with you in this. God is good in our struggles. We hope, and yet we're met with disappointment. I was talking to my son yesterday, our oldest, who spiritually he's really struggled recently. Um, he's a football player. He's given himself to that. He's spent hundreds of hours lifting and working out and studying film and all kinds of things. There's kind of certain goals that he has, but he also feels that God desires, I guess, to use him and the platform that he can have. Um, but there's also this, what I said, I love this quote from Matt Chandler. He said, now whether we're taught it or not, there is almost in every one of us this insidious prosperity gospel belief that we have lived in such a way that we deserve the blessings of God. And my son is a good man, loves God, has been an incredible example, makes good decisions, and yet things have turned out really tough and have been disappointing for him. So he moved all the way across the country, made a lot of tough decisions, left his friends, transferred to a new school, all excited about where God was taking him and what was going to happen. And then two weeks ago, has three guys fall on him, snap his ankle, spread all the bones apart in his foot, and now he's got screws in there. And, and it's all done, just like that. And so he's like, Why? I felt like I was doing the right thing. And we talked about this. 
we talked about Job, Ecclesiastes. We talked about Nehemiah. We talked about disappointment, struggle, and hope in the midst of that. And God's wisdom, not this, if you do this, everything will go perfect for you. That is not the gospel. And it was awesome to have that kind of conversation as we talked about the wisdom of God in the midst of seeing some really difficult things. And ultimately, that God will accomplish what he desires. And that's the thing that I love about these stories is the story isn't over yet. It's not. And as we get towards the end, we see that God really does show up on the scene and take care of business in our place for us. He pays for our sin. He paves the way for us to have a relationship with him, and that is an incredible thing. And we get to enjoy that with him as our king. And so I, I hope that wasn't a total miss, but just so much of these principles that we see in these struggle books are really helpful for us in real life and that we have a God who is good through it all. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, your promises. Like you even said, Jesus, you were like, not my will, but your will. Knowing that your will is tough and difficult and not without struggle. And also knowing that this is reality and that your, your Bible is true, it's accurate, it's real, it's real life experience. And so God, I'm thankful that we did not get coddled by some book that says everything will be just perfect for you. But rather it says you'll have a God who is perfect, who will lay down his life in your place so that you can have his righteousness and be forgiven. And so we're thankful for that. We ask that if there's that shepherd's heart that's welling up in us, that you would help us to act on that and share that with each other and that you would kind of fan into flame those gifts that we have so that we could use that to serve and love others in this community. Thank you, God, for your word and its truth and that it matches reality. We pray this in Jesus' name.